trauma? Uh, some, yeah. From IEDs, grenades, small artillery. And our next guest is well known all over the world, documenting human pain and misery. I photograph what my conscience asks me to. Daniel Fisher, you have been to my country of South Sudan. I have formed a community choir. My friend, we can help you. He asked me not to exhibit photos of his village. Why? His family died in the massacre there. We also suffer with post-traumatic stress. Why is it easier for you to talk to a stranger than me? What is wrong? I must tell you something. It's not my fault that you're unwell. You don't have to put yourself through this. You have opened a door to the past. I must go through. That's the trailer for Hearts and Bones. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Hearts and Bones director Ben Lawrence to discuss his compelling, heartwarming and very emotional new film. Here, we discuss the 15-year origin of the Hearts and Bones script, how his father, Lantana director Ray Lawrence, influenced his career, working with his cast and how trauma has shaped his film so far. Hearts and Bones is available to stream on all major digital platforms from May 6. Anyway, enjoy. Ben Lawrence, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Um, congratulations on this film, by the way. It's uh, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I loved every minute of it, and I said uh, to my wife afterwards that I think we've just witnessed one of those rare films that's, that's um, completely perfect in every way. Uh, so congratulations on it. It's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. It's very nice of you to say. Uh, what was the feedback like uh, from the uh, previous screenings that you've had? Uh, look, the feedback's been great. We launched at the Sydney Film Festival uh, in June last year. We've had a festival run uh, since then, showing it to international audiences, particularly Toronto. Uh, we had several screenings there, full uh, house, and it was very emotional. Uh, we had Q&As afterwards and we had the cast and myself were there and the feedback and the questions and the response was I would have to see I have to say um, emotional I mean there were tears and hugs afterwards and uh, the questions were really interesting to show overseas as well and what their reaction was and were some of the questions surprising to you uh not really. I mean, what surprised me was that the similarity between here and overseas and the, the, the story that we explore and the themes of uh, refugees and trauma and, 
and uh, coming right down to things like parenthood and, and relationships in a suburban setting, they all, uh, you know, Western audiences uh, have, have responded pretty much the same to those themes and to those issues and to the characters themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's address the obvious first. Uh, due to the current situation that uh, the world finds itself in, uh, Hearts and Bones is bypassing a general cinema release uh, for obvious reasons, and um, and it's heading straight to video on demand. How do you feel about this as, as a filmmaker? Uh, look, I'm, I'm excited now. Mm. I felt like initially that we were set to go with a theatrical release in Australia. We had 40 screens in place, uh, and certainly the the campaign that supported that, uh, Hugo, myself, and uh, Andrew, and Balude and Haley, uh, the cast were uh, ready to go on a tour and do a number of Q and A's around Australia, and that's all being uh, shifted now to, uh, you know, pushing it straight to digital platforms. Um, what I'm finding now is that 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 same, I guess, goodwill that you have for a cinema release is still there, and under the current um, restrictions. Um, going to digital seems like the best best um, choice, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone actually said to me recently that you have to be careful when you say that a film like Hearts and Bones is going uh, straight to VOD because more often than not, an Australian film uh, would have a great run across the national and international film festival circuit. So uh, you, you must be grateful that this film had such a great run uh, locally at uh, like Sydney and MIF and uh, BIF and um, uh, Cinefest Oz. Well, no, that's right. And and other festivals as well. We went to Busan in South Korea and, um, you know, we had a great one. We were very lucky with that. The reviews have been very good. And we were all set up for, a, I felt like, a very responsive theatrical release. Yeah. So I think in one, on one hand, yes, it does mean something to an audience. It used to mean something. But there's a lot of films doing it now. And with the support and the awareness of people like yourself and other reviews we've had, um, I feel like it's going to be well supported. And everyone's at home wanting good good material to watch and yes. I felt like this film may fit into that really yeah. well. And as you said it's a universal story it's you know anyone around the world will be able to relate to this story. Um, yeah, so I think it's going to do very well. Um, so I want to give our listeners the opportunity to get to know you better. Um, our audience, or the Cinema Australia audience, is mostly made up of Australian film fans, and um, I think that they would be interested to know that your father is, in fact, uh, Ray Lawrence, uh, the director of uh, Lantana, arguably one of Australia's best films, and, um, and the 2006 crime drama Jindabyne. Uh, so I'm just wondering, how much of an influence was your father on you in terms of your own career? Oh, hugely influential. I um, I want to mention his first film as well, Bliss, which yes, I think is Bliss. probably his his greatest film and, and a real landmark in Australian cinema uh, in the mid eighties. Um, but I look, he's hugely influential. I think that in terms of at a young age, him sharing films with me and his love of films and storytelling and photography and a lot of the other allied arts that go along with that music as well. Um, it's been the basis certainly of our relationship and me formulating my own voice and taste has been influenced like that. I mean, I think uh, he has a love for uh, what you might call reality cinema or, or kitchen sink drama. I mean, it's very p- p- performance focused. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I share. Filmmakers, um, you know, like Mike Lee and, and Ken Loach and in more modern uh, contemporary terms, filmmakers like Michael Winterbottom, I really love. Mm-hmm. So I think we share that and it continues to this day as we kind of might see something and, you know, shoot a text to each other and say, have check this out, just saw this. Um, 
but when we catch up, yeah, it, it, cinema and the love of it certainly is a focus of our relationship and always has been. Oh, that's fantastic. Can you ever escape that question about your father? You can't. It's as good as it is bad. <laughs> I would say that about anything. But I, I think certainly in this case, um, no, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it carries some weight for some people. And I think it's a, a point of fascination sometimes when you have someone following in their father's or parents' footsteps. So, I mean, my mother's a social worker and has been for many years. Mm. Um, and I, I can see, um, you know, her um, certainly instincts and um, love for what she does is in, in my documentary filmmaking and kind of empathy for people. And, and, and that re- is reflected in the storytelling of Hearts and Bones as well. So there's aspects of both my parents, but that's ob- the obvious one. Um, did you ever get to spend time uh, on any of your father's sets uh, like Bliss or Lantana or, or Jindabyne? I did. I'm actually in Bliss. I'm, oh, right. Uh, yeah, I was 10 or 11 at the time and um, there was a scene where a couple of young kids had to jump in a, a bush swimming hole naked and um, I happened to be there on the day and, and um, they they asked if I wanted to do it. So that's my, it's my first scene in a film, my only scene in a film and it's naked. So there you go. <laughs> and uh, you obviously didn't catch the acting bug from that. I didn't. I, look, I studied it when I was younger and I, I used to go to, you know, classes on the weekend and things like that and it, as um, part of you know, directing craft, I think you expose yourself to all of those things. So, but um, it was the other side of the camera was always, always an interest to me. And, um, you know, cinematography and directing was something that's always, always fascinated me from a young age. Mm. So, um, so after an incredibly uh, successful career in uh, TV commercials uh, and as a photographer, um, you went on to make two feature films virtually back to back with Ghost Hunter and, uh, and Hearts of Bones. Uh, did you expect to move so quickly onto Hearts of Bones once you wrapped on Ghost Hunter? I'd hoped to. I mean, it was kind of a plan in the back of my mind to do that. Certainly doing the Ghost Hunter was something that took eight years to make and and that was brewing along the way as I was trying to raise finance and, and follow the characters' lives. Um, but when that came out, we got such a good response. Hearts of Bones script was pretty much ready to go at that point, even though I'd been working on it for 15 years and, mm. and had tried to uh, get it up earlier. Mm. Um, the timing of that with the success of Ghost Hunter really helped. And certainly in getting Hugo Weaving on board to Hearts and Bones, I shared Ghost Hunter with him. It was something we were able to connect over. So that was actually really helpful in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to ask you about uh, Beatrix uh, Christian, who who wrote Jindabyne and co-wrote Hearts and Bones with yourself. Can you tell us about your relationship with Beatrix and, uh, and what she brought to this film? Yeah, well, I met her um, during Jindabyne. I would go and visit set uh, during that period. And um, we would get talking, you know, uh, outside shooting or while they were shooting. We were kind of, neither of us were, kind of had a lot of loose ends. So we'd talk about stories and films and, and um, we connected during that period. And I asked if she'd be interested in looking at some of the things I'd been writing and if she might want to co-write or, or, or write something. Um, and it, it started with that. And so I started sharing short stories with her and then, I wrote the original story for Hearts and Bones and it was in a very flimsy kind of few pages at that point, but it did focus on a war photographer. That was the main thing. And, mm. um, and so that began then uh, during Jindabyne, um, the filming of Jindabyne uh, is when that process started. So that's going back a long way now. Yeah, really, I also met it? my wife on that film as well. So Oh, really? Wow. Um, a lot of uh, great relationships came out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so tell us about Hearts and Bones. Uh, what's it about for our listeners who are, who are yet to discover it? Well, Hearts and Bones focuses on a war photographer uh, coming home 
um, after uh, uh, towards the end of his career, he's having a retrospective exhibition, and he arrives home to find out his wife is pregnant. Um, but he's also approached by a South Sudanese man who now lives in the community in Sydney, and um, he pleads with uh, Daniel, the photographer, not to exhibit any of the photographs he'd taken 20 years earlier from his village. And the film really focuses on their friendship, their relationship, and also around the, the photograph that was taken uh, during that period. There's a mystery around what happened that day. It's buried below uh, layers of trauma of the two men um, and um, some hidden secrets of the South Sudanese man. And uh, their wives start to be drawn into that mystery and, and that evolving friendship as well. So it all takes place in the western suburbs and inner west of Sydney. And uh, it focuses on these two families and how the effects of that photograph 20 years earlier reverberates into their lives today. Mm. Um, one of the best parts about this film is that you never quite know what direction this story is going to take. And, uh, and when, you, when you find out or when you, when you learn that, it's, it's really going to focus on this friendship between um, Hugo and um, uh, Andrew's uh, – sorry, is it Andrew? Andrew, that's right. Andrew's uh, characters. It's, uh, it really takes this beautiful turn. Um, the, photog the photograph at the centre of this film is inspired by one that you came across during an exhibition in Sydney. Is that right? That's right. I saw a photograph uh, going back to the mid-2000s now uh, at the World Press Photograph in the State Library in Sydney. And um, it was of a French photographer had taken in the um, Ivory Coast. <clears throat> and it was of a gentleman on his knees and he had a, a, the barrel of a gun pushed to his head. And it was his expression on his face uh, that really kind of captured my attention. It was um, just sheer terror. But in looking at that photograph, I started to ask myself what was going on in that man's life. Was he, what had he done? Was he a simply an, an innocent bystander that had been pulled over by these troops? And, and who were the troops? Who was the photographer taking it? So that's where the kind of the story began. I looked at other moments like that in history when the young girl running down the street in Vietnam uh, after a napalm bombing is a kind of seminal image from that war. Um, and each war seems to have an image like that, even going through more modern wars like Iraq and Afghanistan. We start to see moments often focusing on children, um, that these images start to start, stay in the minds of, of an audience. But so often the, the uh, photograph, the photographer behind the story is, is, uh, is forgotten, but that, that's what I really drilled into with Hearts and Bones and what their lives might be like when they return home. So did you contact that photographer? Did you ever have any communication with him? No, no, no. but uh, I didn't. But certainly in researching, and I talked to a, a couple of war photographers and what their lives were like. We used the photography of uh, an American photographer called Ron Haviv in the film. And mm. so you'll see several of his works um, that sit around that um, central photograph that we recreated. Um, and so... In talking to Ron about his work and um, what his life was like, and certainly he had a he was at a similar age that Hugo is now, so he's had twenty or thirty years of doing this. Um, that I could get a sense of what his life was like. Mm, wow, uh, that was my next question actually about the photography that's displayed in the film uh, in the background around this central photo. I was uh, curious to know whether they are real photos or not. So, so that's amazing. They they were actually real photos. Yeah, that's right. And I'd initially thought they were going to be black and white because that was my experience of so much war photography. Um, but Ron has such a powerful use of colour uh, through all of his work um, that we decided that that would be what would um, also be the central image would be done in colour. Yeah. 
And Ron, uh, you know, late now in his career has started to shift to more hopeful images. He's uh, certainly worked through the Bosnian War and, and, and Central Africa and, and other regions of civil war. Um, but more lately, his, his photographs are much more full of hope. And I saw a very similar trajectory of his life, his career, and many other war photographers. If they survive their career, they do tend to capture uh, images far more hopeful than they would have in, early on in their career. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, a, I guess, a nice thing for all of us. Yeah. Um, your first film was about a man chasing ghosts from his past, and this film is about a man trying to hide from the ghosts of his past. Is is this theme one that you're intentionally setting out to explore through your storytelling? Certainly. Though trauma in itself has been a big fascination for me in my work, and Ghost Hunter gave me a, a, a front row seat of what, what trauma looks like in its many forms. Um, but I took that into Hearts and Bones, the experience of that, because it, um, I really wanted to do justice to it. It's such a, it's such a, um, a strange and mysterious affliction that so much of society uh, experiences in that it can be something we've witnessed in our childhoods. It can be something, a, a breakup of a relationship that, that is, uh, experience is embedded within us. I think the idea of people running toward it or running from it uh, is very common. It can happen in, in, in one person, that experience. I mean, I, I, certainly in Andrew's case, our South Sudanese character, uh, he's trying to hide something and he's, and he's looking forward. So he has, uh, 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 I guess, a, um, a regret that sits in his past. Mm. And uh, Daniel, uh, the photographer, the Hugo Weaving's um, character, has a fear of the future and anxiety about what may happen that revolves around, hope, you know, the birth of his new child and his relationship. So the two men have very different relationships with their past and present, um, but it's closing off one aspect of your life in order to survive is a very common thing for trauma survivors, many, many other uh, afflictions like depression, suicidal thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a spectrum like many things of the human experience, and I think that uh, all of us can relate to it. Mm-hmm. Um I want to talk a bit more about that later, but um, now, uh, Hugo Weaving uh, said that he read a version of this script many years ago, and you just spoke about uh, um, having started the script 15 years ago or so, Um, but Hugo said that he felt uh, as though it wasn't quite ready to shoot. So can you tell us about the evolution of this story over the years and and how it grew? Yeah, certainly. I did share the script with Hugo um I want to say four years ago now, right. but we probably shot the film uh, a little over 18 months ago. So, yeah, um, yeah he just felt it wasn't right. Um, but look, looking back now, he was right. You know, I probably wasn't ready as well. You know, I was on a different point in my career. But I think the the, the, the subsequent um, couple of years' work that we did do on it, um, what we really focused on is, is creating that core mystery that's within the film. Yes. So it packages the film, in, I guess, in a thriller-like way that you move through it uh, it's very accessible and it, and it does have a lot of pace to it. But the underlying tones of, of, of relationships and friendships and trauma and this, I guess, this more universal story around war and refugees sits behind all of that. So the intent was to make it accessible and entertaining for a suburban audience who is someone like me, um, but really explore deeper issues and make it more emotionally satisfying and, and, and resonant and deeper mm. uh, as an as an under-experience. So, um I think that's what those last couple of years really, really gave it an opportunity to do that. And his feedback was really helpful then. And I think when we got together, I'd made Ghost Hunter and we were able to talk far more in depth about these issues. Yeah. 
You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, while I was preparing uh, my questions for this interview, uh, I told myself that I didn't want to ask you about working with someone like Hugo because it's a bit of a cliche and we all just expect him to be good. But then I thought, no, bugger it. He's so bloody good in this film and, uh, and he deserves to be celebrated. So can you tell us a bit about working with Hugo and what he brought to this character? Um, I've never known a man to be able to express so much emotions through his eyebrows. He's yeah. amazing. <laughs> Well, look, I loved working with Hugo. I know that is a cliche that you hear about directors working with actors, but you know, I'm on a campaign to make um, Hugo a, a living treasure if he isn't already in the minds of everyone. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you measure that. It might be a stamp or something that we could get made of him or something like that, <laughs> as we do in Australia. But look, I um, hadn't known, hadn't met Hugo prior to uh, sharing the script with him. Um, we caught up uh, a couple of days later after he'd had a read of it and um, we talked for hours. I was meant to actually jump on a plane that day and I missed the flight because oh, wow. we were just so engrossed in it. We talked for several hours about the story, about you know how we like to work, what films we enjoy. So it was a really fantastic experience. I was very blessed to have someone like him who was so supportive of working with what, you know, for me at the time was a documentary filmmaker mm. um, and – he was very interested in, in embracing parts of that process, as was I, to um, help support what, what we were looking at um, casting a non-actor in the South Sudanese role, which eventuated. Mm. Um, so all of those processes he was very enthusiastic about and, and wanting to bring that natural, um, I guess, tone to the overall film. Mm. I was really interested in casting someone of Hugo's calibre against a non-actor. And mm. so that was a, a something that we talked a lot about. Um, I really didn't direct Hugo much. I mean, I, I just relied on him. He was the rock in the film that we all kind of revolved around. And I knew that he was always going to, you know, deliver great variety, but also solid performances. And I agree. I think it's one of his, um, I mean, Sydney Morning Herald recorded a landmark performance of his. And when you look at his characters, he's played such a range of different characters, Mm. um, that a suburban husband, albeit a war photographer, was not in that canon of work. So it was someone that I guess that we all could have met that may live, you know, in a, in a suburb next to us. Mm. So it was very accessible. It wasn't like it wasn't like the characters that he'd done in The Matrix or anything like that. So mm. I was really fascinated by that. And the most beautiful thing was is with the first scene that he did with Andrew, who had never acted before, <laughs> um, it really just from that moment on, the film just soared and the whole process was wonderful because – I think Hugo, Hugo said to me afterwards that first scene, he goes, I can see the film now. I can see the tone of the performances. I know how I need to adjust to Andrew's performance in a way. Wow. And Prue had that feeling with, in trying to support Andrew. It really gave us a heightened sense of awareness, a heightened sense of what we were doing. And trying to comfort him created a really beautiful environment. But when you see the scenes between Andrew and Hugo, I just think they're so fantastic. Yeah. And the rapport that was building between them on screen was happening off screen as well. So these two men of a similar age bonding from vastly different um, backgrounds uh, was really wonderful to watch. And as we progressed, that just became richer and richer. Yeah, and you really feel it through the screen as well. You really feel their relationship growing. Um, Tell us how you discovered Andrew and, and what it was like to work with someone whose talents are so raw. His performance is incredible. 
Well, look, we did an open casting on Facebook across Australia and, and uh, the one where we met Andrew, we were set up in a community hall in Sunshine in Melbourne. And um, so we had a number of South Sudanese men come in and um, we just sat with them, talked to them, asked them about their life experience, what, their passion, what they were passionate about. And as soon as Andrew came in, I knew and hoped it was him. I mean, at one, I, I could just see something about him that I'd pictured that character was. And when he sat down and started talking, he had such a wonderful stillness and kindness about him um, that really belied what secrets may be sitting in his past or the character's past. So it was a lovely counterpoint. And the way he spoke and the calmness with the way he talked really drew me in. I leant forward. And that's what I hope the audience does for his scenes is you lean into this man and you want to hear what he's saying. And there, when I found out that he had a, a lot of community work, he, he, he'd done, uh, he'd been a pastor, uh, very heavily involved in his church and had a very deep love for music. Uh, straight away for me, I just thought I've really got to support this guy the best way I can. And I, I need, really needed to campaign for him with the producer and the casting director um, because they were, uh, I guess, cautious, cautious about uh, giving someone the size of this role that it was to someone who had never been in ca- on camera before, never had any acting experience. And as Andrew reminds me every time I talk to him now, that he had more dialogue than Hugo Weaving. So <laughs> it was a mammoth, mammoth mountain to climb. Yeah, yeah. Oh, mate, his, his performance is, yeah, wow, it's really, really incredible. Um, does having, ma- having made a documentary and, uh, and having worked in factual television, does that help with uh, working with the real-life characters in the film, like the choir, who I assume oh, were, totally. were... Yeah, yeah. Totally. I mean, having a non-actor there, having a group of people who haven't been on screen or had limited experience, you know, the ex- uh, my experience of working in documentaries and factual is that, you know, you really do shape the production and the method to these people's, uh, I guess, comfort level. And, you know, it takes a bit longer. Sometimes you need to shoot things a certain way. Sometimes it's just building a friendship or a sense of trust with that person. I mean, it's very similar to working with actors that you want to create that trust. But I think, you know, in factual and documentary, you work at their schedule. I mean, you're working with real people who have real life problems and families and work. And all of that impacts the production. So being aware of that, I think, um, gets the best out of them. And certainly in Andrew's case, we had a huge support network in terms of the prep that we did for him was two months. And then when he came on set, we scheduled it. So he really took his way of beginning with the easiest scenes of no dialogue and worked his way up over a week to then start to do some heavier, longer dialogue scenes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I've got two more questions, um, uh, and one, this first one is going back to something we were discussing before, but uh, a handful of Australian films have explored PTSD recently. Um, Escape and Evasion is one that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, and as someone who has suffered uh, a mild form of PTSD uh, in their past, uh, I'm always fascinated to hear how a filmmaker goes about researching it. Um, uh, particularly if they've never experienced it for themselves, and, and I'm not assuming that you haven't. But uh, can you tell us uh, about your research here? And yeah, by look, the way, I, I think that uh, you and Hugo have nailed it, by the way. I think I should just say that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it was something that um, was obviously central to a lot of discussions, uh, even going back and working with, with B Christian on the script, is to how do we show this? Because that, you know, is the challenge for all filmmakers, is how do we show this to the audience? It's so much of trauma is um, internalised and, uh, you know, the, the feelings of shame or the feelings of, of depression, I mean, they don't translate very well and they're not necessarily very engaging on screen. So 
the outward manifestations became the thing that we tried to focus on and the actions that people take uh, within our story uh, and how that reflected their their type of trauma uh, was what we were fascinated. I mean, take take Hugo's shaking of his hands. I mean, that was something that said so much very quickly. And once you understand what he does, um, that's something uh, that manifests and communicates to the audience that not not all is right with his character. Mm. And we started to build on that. Okay, what's the next level? How do we, you know, is it a more of uh, arguments with his with his wife or partner? Mm. And and things like that within the household that we can demonstrate. I think all people will relate to diff- those different levels. Some don't take it to the extreme, obviously, of what, what we uh, explore in the film. Um, but... It, like I said, it's it, the the sim- symptoms of, of trauma are so elusive and so internal, most of it, um, that it's very difficult for a filmmaker to uh, show on screen. Mm. But it was those outward ones that, that really gave us uh, the best framework. Mm-hmm. Incredible job. Um, as parents, we try to protect our children from the horrors of the world, uh, especially, you know, how they're presented on the six o'clock news. Uh, you've dedicated the film to your children, uh, Helen and Moses. Uh, why is that? Um, I guess I was writing this film with B during the period in which uh, my children were being born and growing up. Um, the fears that I had for them, <laughs> like all parents do, you know, yeah. when they're first born, are they okay and they're sleeping in their cot or, you know, is the, is the, am I driving safely enough? I mean, all of that, the, 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 I guess the nightmares or the dreams that you have surrounding those fears as well, um, particularly for me in early parenthood, were really strong. So it was something that I felt that doubled down upon anyone else who was feeling trauma from their previously in their life anyway. So to bring children into a world that you already felt fearful of um, is very challenging, I think, for a lot of people. And so it, it was a formula, uh, formulative time for me, and I guess they made me understand that I didn't want to feel fearful of the world, and I needed to reflect that for them. And so... I guess they taught me a lot about myself, as all kids do. Um, all parents find that out. Yeah. And so that's. I just wanted to also give them in the future, when they see, they haven't seen the film, a sense of hope yes. that despite all of this um, trauma that goes on in the world, um, generally the world has gotten to be in a better place over time. And the steps we take backwards um, are always, you know, counted by steps forward. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the main takeout for me, that the reason why people like Andrew, uh, you know, when you look at his life experience of escaping South Sudan with his seven kids, um, he did it because he had hope. You know, he did it because he thought the world, the place, his life could be better. He didn't do it because he was um, uh, thought negatively about the world that things were going to get worse and i that's you know with the photographs that we see in the film particularly the photographs that end the film Mm. for me as much as they're confronting they're full of hope yes that's right um that's beautiful uh so what's next for you are you going to uh go back to back again are you ready to jump into your next film no, look, I don't have anything ready to go. I'd love to jump into something. Where the world's at, we're yeah. all developing and writing. And certainly once we all come out of this uh, situation, I think there'll be some incredible stories to yeah. tell yeah. Um, because everyone's uh, reassessing what's important to them. And, and I feel in some ways that Hearts and Bones fits into that sense of hope and um, connecting with people. Mm. Uh, ben, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with you. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to join the Cinema Australia podcast. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au.